I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Senior Programmer for Literature and Spoken Word here at South Bank Centre, and I'm delighted to be here with Zadie Smith. Hey. Hi. Um, with a sensibility as incisive as it is humane, as witty as it is wise, whether in fiction or in essays, Zadie Smith is simply one of the essential voices of our times. We're here today to talk about her fifth novel, Swing Time, which through the story of a friendship caught on the threshold between girlhood and adulthood, lays bare the inner divisions and outer inequalities of the modern world. The novel's also bookended by a scene in which the narrator visits this very hall, and I want to ask if there's a kernel of experience in that for you and perhaps if you have any connections with the space that we're in. I think, I'm aware that my mum is in the audience and might contradict me at any point, but I, I think I was in like a children's choir competition. I was in the Brent Children's Choir and in my primary school there was a kind of, you know, primary schools against each other. Mm. And my memory is of one year us doing quite well for, you know, a little state school in North London. We came like fourth or fifth and being thrilled by that. Mum, does that sound correct? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So that's, that's my only experience on this stage, but it was lovely. I mentioned the book ending, and it's one of the many ways in which time kind of moves elliptically in the novel. And Tracy and the unnamed narrator, you write, were the first generation to have in our own houses the means to re- and forward-wind reality. The wonders of VHS seem to also come at a sort of temporal price right. as well. She also says at one point in the book, I saw all my years at once, but they were not piled up on each other, but experience after experience, building into something of substance, the opposite. Does this newfound flexibility that that generation has with time, is it also an illusion of control? I guess what I think more is that technology works like a metaphor, like you're not always aware of it. Like some of the films that I was really fascinated by when I was a kid, like Back to the Future. Love Back it. to the Future comes out of that idea that you could have a second chance, that you could rewind, play it again. So your, your vision of your life starts to be tempered by the technology, basically. And I think the, the other strange effect of the forward and rewinding was the idea that there could be a moment in which everything changed. Yeah. And you still see that lingering, right? Like on the talent shows, people will say, this is my moment, this is the moment, if I just get this moment. So you, you start having a vision of life, which I suppose I find a little bit um, artificial and worrying, that there is a certain key moment in your life in which everything transforms. Narratives are structured that way, movies are structured that way. Mm. The technology gives you a kind of glimpse of the way you view your life because you need a model people need models and structures to think about what is basically an incredibly amorphous mass of feeling and sensation and sound and yeah. taste and when I think about technology it's not that I'm against it but I always want to think about what it means and what it's doing to me. One of the other ways that you explore time in the book is through dance and right. there's this sense that dance is a way to transcendence in a way that it, the dancers can move outside of time and that Tracy and the narrator can as well. But you also want to show us those moments when history catches up with the dancer right. as well, when Astaire in Swing Time is in blackface, or Jenny Lagon, whose ghost kind of haunts these pages. Was it the possibility of transcendence that took you to dance, to writing about dance, or was it also those historical missteps as well? Both things are true. Like, the first thought I had was, is really sentimental, and I guess I'm someone who always, if I have a sentimental idea, I always want to interrogate it and think, well, is that true? Is it really true? Mm. And the, the sentimental idea, I think, was when I made a trip to Liberia years ago, and I was in a, a group of women who were s selling small things, soaps and small products in the market. 
I was there as a journalist to kind of talk about microfinance, I suppose. And afterwards, as a kind of celebration, we gathered and they danced all around me. Um, and it was an unbelievably spectacular dance, but I had this strong sentimental feeling that it was, to me, I was looking at it trying to be objective, but it was the same dance I could see in a Beyonce video, the same dance I do in my kitchen, the same dance you can see in little glimpses of movies from the 20s and 30s, same dance you can see all over the world. And I, and I was fascinated by the continuity because I knew, it, you know, historically it doesn't seem possible that people are a mode, a dance step all over the world without access to the same media or the same... So I was moved by it, I guess. That's the kind of feeling you have when you think of people as a, as a community. In this case, the black diaspora, I thought, these are my people, look how they dance, look how I dance, we dance like this. So I was interested in that idea and how sentimental it was and how real it could possibly be. Is it true, when you think of races, tribes, religious groups, that there is something essential in them that can pass across borders and blah, blah, blah. So there was that which I think of neither as a negative or positive idea, just as a deep thing that wells up in people, a feeling that they have of Jewishness, blackness, whiteness, whatever it is. And then I was thinking more historically, like the two things to me don't need to be in conflict. Mm -hmm. The idea that, that the slaves moving from West Africa when they came to the decks of the boats had their dances from all over West Africa, and the Irish navvies working on these boats had their jigs, and what you, the mix of these two things creates tap dancing, basically. Mm. It's this kind of incredible historical explosion. And even if it's not historically accurate, I loved it as a story, you know? And then finally something which is, uh, that I heard a tap dancer say, a white tap dancer actually in America, called Michelle Dorrance, who won a MacArthur, I think, big prize for tap dancing, which is very rare. And she said, when she thought about the roots of dance, particularly tap dancing, she thought again, actually, of slaves and the idea that when you are moved in that way and everything taken from you, so all possessions, family, obviously, all ideas of reading or writing are removed, you have only your body. So dance, that kind of universal aspect of dance, that sentimental aspect of dance, may be that, that it's the only art form in which you use literally the only thing you have left, body. So I, I guess I found that idea really interesting too. One of the things that's been really interesting about the novel and some of the pieces you've written lately is that you've really embraced um, your interest in other art forms and you were describing about putting things on the page that wouldn't there, weren't there before. Don DeLillo, when he was here, he talked about one of the joys is getting to moonlight as a, as a contemporary artist and to put right. things in his books which are conceptual works of right. art. Do you feel as this experience of writing about dance has unlocked for you a sense that you could move through different art forms or is this I was always I always felt very narrowly educated right like I wasn't when I got to college I had to do a lot of hiding like I had mm. to hide that I can't add I don't know the, even the most basic rules of science so like I had just holes everywhere all I knew about was novels and that was it so so when I started writing novels I just really thought you better stay in your lane because if you move even slightly to the left there's going to be a disaster so it's 20 years later and I think when I'm writing about art, I'm writing as the civilian of civilians, like with no expertise, no professional experience, and music and all of, all of those things. But I think what's really compelled me, I guess, being in America the past 10 years, is that my generation of, I suppose, particularly black artists, have exploded, you know, like things mm. that were seeded many years ago in the beginnings of hip-hop, for example, and now flowering things like Kendrick and things yeah. like I can't, 
you feel a kind of irrational pride, even though obviously you did nothing, I did nothing to contribute to it. But I'm just glad, it makes me happy, and I, and I see the idea of an art form that you grew up with having a history. Like when I see there's a hip-hop library at Harvard, there's, I find that all very moving, so I'm kind of compelled to write about that stuff. And then mm. recently I, I wrote about a black British artist called Lynette Yadam Borokin, and that was, again, just a kind of a rational pride. You're like, oh, look, you look around, you see your generation, you think, oh, it's happening, and they're making these pieces of art which I find incredibly striking and compelling and, and that I, I suppose I empathize with or relate to in some intimate way. So it's, to me, it's just joyful to, to hear all these voices. I don't really write bad reviews. I, never, I don't have much energy for... I didn't like this book, or by the way, I hate this painting. I'm not very engaged by that as a motivation. No. But it's been fun to uh, add a layer of words over something which is already beautiful. I mean, it's just interesting that you've been in looking at time through so many different lenses and that speculative fiction might seem a way to, yeah. to continue that. It's really the only subject for me. I don't know why. I think other writers, there are writers for whom romance is the only subject. There are not many, I think. It's quite, I think that's a minority interest. Family. Mm. the only subject history itself but for me yeah time I just extremely anxious about it always have been I've always felt that there's not enough of it to put it frankly there's a funny Woody Allen quote he says I don't want to achieve immortality through my work I want to achieve it by living forever that, that's basically how I feel <laughs> do, do you <laughs> do you feel as though writing the novels gives you a different sense of the time that you've had? Or is it because you talked about how it marks your life, and you, you know, does it? I think, I don't know, I think it's a bit compulsive in the end. Like I, when I was young, I had a bit of an aloof attitude. Like I didn't think I was a novelist by, by nature. I just thought it was something that I did. And then I guess as the years have gone by and I've met other novelists, like I recognize traits, you know, mm. that it's, there's something a little bit sad about it. Like I, Sometimes I have a, not a good friend, but a kind of, I don't know him very well, but sometimes I, in New York I see Mr. Roth, mm -hmm. who of course is the ultimate novelist of novelists, and just in terms of his practice, he would write one, finish, mm. wake up the next day and start another for 50 years. Mm. So when you see something like that, it, it, to me it is a compulsion. I mean, Philip managed to live a lot as well as write, but I think it is an odd thing. Long stretches of my life have been spent in the Windows program, day and night, like in one case in NW for seven years, seven years, mm. every day in the same floor of the library looking at the same Windows 97 program. It's an odd life. And, and the, sh the slightly shameful part of it is I, I had a child in that period, so that child is one day going to say, what, what were you doing exactly? <laughs> what was going on? I like the process. I, like, I can't imagine now daily colleagues and that whole relation with people every day. I, I teach my small amount and that is great, like a room of 12 smart people and I enjoy doing that, but, but I'm happiest just on that floor in the library, yeah. You mentioned having your, your child there as well, but you've said before that letting life in has been a positive, I think. Yes, it? it's better. I, I definitely, and I'm sure my mother would confirm this thought at 15 that I was just gonna sit in a chair and write every day till I died. I didn't have any other plans. I didn't believe in the body, for instance. I didn't see the point in exercise, food other than just stuffing a face in order to write some more, smoke like a chimney. I didn't see any other kind of life. And I also had that adolescent um, 
people who were concerned with that, like with things like traveling to other countries, yeah. having relationships, walking. <laughs> I didn't have any, I didn't have anything to say to them. I just thought, I didn't understand what their problem was. And I thought that <laughs> you could just live through books and it would be fine. That's not the case, you know. Also, the books would become very thin, I think. Experience, even the little bits I've had, and they're almost all domestic, I suppose, having a family and then doing a, not a very great amount of travel has been so expansive every time, you know. Well, my great dream is to go to Japan, which I still haven't done, but, but just the, the idea of what Japan would do. Not, not meaning that you'd suddenly write a load of books set in Japan, but anything which shows me another possibility of life, I just find incredibly fruitful now. Have you been on more walks then since that? Yeah, I'm, I'm fully signed up to like the body thing now. I do stuff. <laughs> I'm engaged, I swim, I run, I'm like... And it's, it's actually better for the... I think, again, when you're a young writer, you have the idea that if you're not drunk and smoking every day and, and concentrated only on this thing, then you're not a real writer. But I... Well, that's New York, isn't it? New York has convinced me that health is also important. <laughs> The first line of the book is the first day of my humiliation, which feels like it has that quality of it being a, a, a moment of atonement or of, of sequestering oneself away. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the greatest fears that narrator seems to have is of being found out or exposed, which feels like, a, in a way, a religious fear of, being, of having one's soul or one's inner self exposed to the world. You've written brilliantly about questions of identity and fraudulence and, and the sort of messy selves that we are. Why is this a defining fault line in our world at the moment, do you think? It does seem to me that people are really eagerly humiliating each other all the time. Like, everybody wants to humiliate somebody else. And I know it from personal experience that you want, everybody wants to feel in the right. It's the most attractive feeling in the world, to be self-righteous and to be in the right. And it becomes harder and harder in a complex moral world to find somebody who you are definitively better than. Mm. But there's like a real desire to be, to sit in the, a place of moral goodness. Mm. Or at least to feel, just on a Tuesday afternoon, that somebody is a bigger shithead than you. And, and there are these cycles of kind of humiliation and abuse online of people gathering together and thinking, oh, I'm not that person who is so clearly an arsehole. I understand the desire. I think everybody has it. But... Um, I guess when I'm writing, like particularly when I'm writing essays, I'm trying to evince the opposite. Like I'm not trying to be anybody. Like, I don't. I, I'm not making any claims. I'm not authentic. I'm not. I'm none of those things. I'm completely a mess. Whatever you think that I'm all of those things. I, I, I think a certain amount of humiliation is a kind of a good thing, mm. or to to accept it and accept that you cannot ever be in this role of righteousness. Yeah. I understand the desire to aspire towards it, but I don't claim that place. Being a, a black woman has never really been a place of righteousness through history, but maybe there are little glimpses of it now. And so the temptation to, to grab it with both hands is very strong. I, I would resist that urge. I, I think it's best resisted in everybody, because as soon as you get on your little pedestal, because you are a human, and this is where that kind of, um, those Catholic ideas and high Anglican ideas come through. The assumption from that perspective is that you're always in sin, really. Mm. You're always making some terrible error. You're always hurting someone. You're always being a dickhead to someone at some point. I would be wary of mm. the position of superiority because I would fall from it very swiftly. Um, yeah. Can we hear a, a little passage oh, yeah. from the book? Because it would be a great moment. All right, it'll be short. Yeah. Don't worry. I'm just gonna do it. This is the beginning of chapter four. If Fred Astaire represented the aristocracy... I represented the proletariat, said Jean Kelly. 
And by this logic, Bill Bojangles Robinson should really have been my dancer because Bojangles danced for the Harlem Dandy, for the Ghetto Kid, for the sharecropper, for all the descendants of slaves. But to me, a dancer was a man from nowhere, without parents or siblings, without a nation or people, without obligations of any kind. And this was exactly the quality I loved. The rest of it, all the detail, fell away. I ignored the ridiculous plots of those movies, the opera-like comings and goings, the reversals of fortune, the outrageous meet-cutes and coincidences, the minstrels, maids, and butlers. To me, they were only roads leading to the dance, and the story was the price you paid for the rhythm. Pardon me, boy, is that the Chattanooga Chichu? Each syllable found its corresponding movement in the legs, the stomach, the backside, the feet. In Ballet Hour, by contrast, we danced to classical recordings, white music, as Tracy bluntly called it, which Miss Isabel recorded from the radio onto a series of cassettes. But I could barely recognize it as music. It had no time signature that I could hear. And although Miss Isabel tried to help us, shouting out the beats of each bar, I could never relate these numbers in any way to the sea of melody that came over me from the violins or the crashing thump of a brass section. I still knew more than Tracy. I knew there was something not quite right about her rigid notions, black music, white music. There must be a world somewhere in which the two combined. In films and photographs, I had seen white men sitting at their pianos as black girls stood by them singing. Oh, I wanted to be like those girls. I think that's a nice moment to um, <laughs> open up to the um, audience. There are some dexterous people with microphones who are going to be um, running around to you. So if you could just put your hand up and we'll, we'll come to you. You've said in previous interviews that when sometimes when you start your books, you never have too much of a plan. Right. Um, for me, in a lot of your books, it feels, with, with time, it feels like a very specific plan on how you're going to explore the time in that book. Does that fit into your not having a plan, or do you often think of a, of a way you want to explore time in your books? The analogy I always use, I still think it's true even if I always use it. You know, when, if you're in a jazz band, for example, and you, you have like a set chord list for you're singing autumn leaves or whatever those chords are really they're just the basis and everything else is this kind of improvisation around it and you can move in any direction and that's kind of how they're written I, I have a suppose a thematic idea which I don't always approve of like it depresses me the essayistic part of my fiction I wish it was less so but I, that's how my mind works and I try and disguise it a little better, like On Beauty is not a very good disguise, it's literally got an essay title and then proceeds. <laughs> but I usually have some kind of generalized idea. Well, I was inspired by my husband who has a box of those cards by, is it Brian Eno, called Optimum Strategies, do you know that? You just open the box and you take out a card and it has some like quite abstract instruction like go backwards or take a right turn where you would have gone left. And whatever art practice you're doing, you mm. read that however you want to and do that. So I, I'm not as random as my husband, but I do do things like for the school auction in New York, you know, you're meant to give something to raise money. And I, as usual, had done nothing and was useless. So at the last minute, I said, well, you can have a name in the novel, you know. And I didn't think about it. Nine months passed. And then I was halfway through the book. And the PTA woman phoned up and said, well, we've got a name. And it's Fernando Cripricano. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> really? A novel set in London and West Africa. Thank you so much. 
So then I um, researched the name and realized it was Brazilian Portuguese name. So that whole character came out of that late accident. Um, but, but you see how it's, you, in the end, I think when a novel's going well, anything is good. It's all like ballast to the fire, if that's even the right word. So I think it just, he got folded in and ended up being very important and the love interest in the end. He's kind of the hope at the very end of the book. So yeah, stuff like that. Throughout this talk, it's been kind of interesting to note the way you talk about black existence in America, almost as separate to black existence in Britain. And I yeah. was wondering if you did feel a kind of difference, I suppose, whether it emerged as a kind of double consciousness or... I don't, I don't think of it as a feeling. I just think of it as a historical reality. There's obviously a difference. There's, there's a historical difference in terms of circumstance and, and actual history. But then there's a difference again when you think about the Caribbean experience and South American experience. So it's all differences, you know. So I, I do think of it as separate, but I also am interested in the ways that they connect. Like there is obviously, I think about me and my brothers growing up listening to all this hip hop from supposedly places very distant from my experience, but there was a sense of connection, a language that could be spoken over those borders. So that certainly exists. I believe in diasporas, they exist. Within them, there are enormous structural differences, I think. One that does strike me, and it may just be me and, and personal, is that in America, no matter how unequal and depressing and violent and the rest of it, race is at least constantly spoken. And in England, I always had the feeling that it was in bad taste, as far as the English were concerned. Each place could learn from the other, but I think it's very freeing to speak openly. Even if you're not agreeing, if you're arguing constantly, and to have it implied that oh, all you ever think about is race, get over it, which I've, I felt as a kid maybe was a kind of British assumption, rightly or wrongly. At least in America there is the sense, which is again particular to their history, that race is the story of America. But I have found that freeing and interesting just because the conversation is so diverse and has so many elements in America, so complicated. Uh, to me, it was just uh, interesting to be there in that space. Hiya. Hi. Um, you've talked really interestingly about how much easier it is to analyse the moral goodness or character of the people that you write about and how difficult it can be to mirror that behaviour yourself. Right. So do... Do your novels improve you? You know, if you'd asked me that when I was 24, I would have laughed you out of court. And now I have to say, I do think they're therapeutic. I don't say that it's an improvement. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I find them therapeutic to write. I do. It's therapeutic to think through ideas in a lengthy and complex way. That, that's the main part. You know, in conversation, in human relations, you've got to be so brief or you've got to... And online, even briefer and even more fervent and determined... I like the ambivalence in a novel. I can feel so many different things. I've so enjoyed being an old white guy, a strange Jewish autograph collector, an old black American woman, or whoever it is, a young, hot black guy swimming in a pool in Boston. I like being all those people. For me, it's, it really is like living twice, which was always my issue with time, that I was going to have to live once as me. And in the novels, I get to be all those people. And presumably offend all the representatives of those people on earth, but I get to be those people for a while. I have found that both therapeutic and some kind of compensation for dying. <laughs>
what emotion would you say, if it does, what emotion inspires you most in your writing? Joy, probably joy. I, I know maybe I don't include so many moments of joy in the fiction, but to me it's the kind of motivating thing. When, when they do appear in books, they're quite often stolen from real life. Like there's one moment in On Beauty where three siblings meet by accident, and that did happen to me one day in the Finchley Road. And it seemed very improbable. You know, we had no reason to think one of us was even in the country, and we all walked into each other in the same street at the same moment. Things like that, people call coincidence or, or find some kind of light in moments like that. I like that. I like including them in fiction because they're fictional to begin with. They're totally improbable. That is something I like. In the essay, maybe more anger. It's quite a cold anger. I'm not, I'm not a hot person, you know. Or I don't think that, like a lot of my students think that writing angry just means saying, I hate you, I hate... But of course, that doesn't have the effect. That doesn't do anything. It's just noise. It's just typing. Real anger you need to express in the way that comes across, not just saying, I hate this film, it's terrible, I hate everybody in it, and that's just repetition, it's dull. So I think learning to express fury, distaste, or disdain, or separation from something in language that really actually has an effect, uh, I like doing that too, it's kind of separating wheat, wheat from chaff, but usually to se celebrate wheat. You know, I'm, I'm more about saying, if this is bad, it's because this is really good and should be attended to. It's funny that you mentioned joy because that's what I wanted to say to you. Thank you for being here tonight and thank you for all of your writing because as an aspiring writer, it brings me such joy. Sometimes I'll be on the tube and I want to show it to the person next to me just how you <laughs> capture the ordinary in the most extraordinary ways. And I wondered who for you is an inspiration or what do you turn to for inspiration? It, it changes. I suppose music is the most reliable in terms of it's like dopamine, it's so immediate. From my kids, I get nothing but terrible pop music, but even that, I, I'm a fan of pop music. I've always liked pop music. I like even manufactured joy I like. Writer-wise, writer um, I mean, I've written about people, like, I guess, like Zora Neale Hurston, George Eliot, like, who are historically important to me. There's George Saunders, the American writer who... I find really like a kind of quasi-religious writer. He's so great. But I'm always kind of open. Like at the moment I'm reading a young French-American writer called Camille Bordas, who I really love. You know, I'm a terrible sucker for Broadway musicals, it's probably obvious. But anything with, with life in it. And I, I do get a lot of cathartic energy out of furious music. I think that maybe that is why I love hip-hop so much, is that it's anger elevated to art in a way that I can really get behind. And I, I can't walk down the street with Kendrick's attitude. I can't say, you know, bitch, be humble to people as they walk down the street. But when it's on, my earphones are on, I feel that emotion. And I, and I feel it as... That's a good example in that song, that it's both what it seems to be, just a kind of angry, boasting song, but also almost like a religious um, instruction, a greater grandeur. I am someone who's heavily influenced. Everything I write is under the influence of somebody else, and the only thing which is in any way original about it is the mixture of those influences. Mm. And I, I do know other writers who, who are the opposite, who listen to something very pure and, and distinct to them, and it's important for them not to be infected by other writers, by other ideas. I, I've never been like that. I'm not that kind of writer. Mm. So um, I teach in London and I teach, you know, a whole range of students. They're very multicultural, but they just can't seem to capture the fact that they have 
very, very individual identities. And I think because, I know I'm using the word multicultural, we talked about identity and adolescence and race, and, but they don't see race in the way that other people do. And I just wondered if you had sort of any advice for them of how they can sort of capture their, their individual identities that they have that kind of other people can't maybe explain. And I think... Right my day-to-day I'm trying to get them to celebrate that and it's but you do that so thoughtfully even though it's in the past I think it might take a while there's nothing I wanted to be more when I was a kid than like in a tribe any tribe I wanted to be part of something even if it was just weed smokers anonymous of Kilburn High Road I wanted to be (laughs) in in a group I think that's natural particularly for girls my daughter is so paranoid at the idea that I in any way am odd or my head wrap is odd or I don't look like the mums at school or I've got a weird accent or she wants me to just be like everybody else in whatever context, you know. And it's so funny, it shifts, you know, it can be wherever we are, I'm wrong in some ways, as far as she's concerned. <laughs> two English here, two American there. I can see her desire for conformity, it's so strong, you know, she just wants to go unnoticed, just in the crowd as much as possible. But I think that does change a bit later. But maybe it's a natural stage to say I I want to be part of this gang this group but I've never really felt like that I feel like someone who just changes as the wind changes and you know I I don't know it's very mysterious to me identity it's something that I feel like everybody else seems very sure about and I have no idea (laughs) you spoke earlier about how where are you just in the middle right oh yeah (laughs) um the impact that your generation has had on art and I'm 23 and growing up in terms of black British female writers it was you and Mallory Blackman. So becoming an author always seemed something that was quite inaccessible. So I was wondering if there was a specific experience you had that made you feel that it was something that was achievable to you. Uh, Well, that I have to give to my mother. I I think when I was growing up, thinking about black female writers, British, I don't think I knew any. Probably should have. I knew the Americans. And I took the Americans as my model, and they were given to me by my mother, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, Zora Neale Hurston. As far as my mother's listened to me, she might not agree with me, but I felt, and I still feel, that, that the problem with role models is exactly as you say. It's fine if they're there, but if they're not there, what are you meant to do? One of the things that was useful to me that my mother sometimes said to me was, okay, so this book is nothing about you, it's got nothing to do with you, it doesn't represent us in any way, but people have said it's worth reading. I suggest you read it. So let's just read it, and if they're reading it, we'll read all of the stuff they read, and then I'll still be me, do you know what I mean? I'll still be me, and whatever I've read, it will come through me in a different way because I'm me. Sometimes that's super challenging, right? You're reading Daniel Defoe in college and you have to deal with Friday. You're dealing with Conrad's unspeakable N-word book, et cetera, et cetera. So you're trying to work your way through a canon where you have no reflection, and it's not easy, and the aim is always to, to multiply so that the next kid doesn't feel that way. But I absolutely clung to the little I had, and I think that's why Zora in particular, it's just basic. It's just reading about someone who physically seems to look like you, who seems to, even at that distance, Florida, Wilsden, there's nothing in common really, but it was recognizable to me in some way. The only people who think that's not relevant or is some a kind of minor element in literature, people who never have to think twice about it, right? If you never have to look at it, if you consider the whole world your role model, you think, well, how curious that these people only want to read books with people like them in it, as if it's some kind of minor intellectual quirk. But it's survival, you know? You just need some reflection. So 
I do feel, like the, the people I had, also the Indian subcontinent writers and, and Indians in England, particularly Hanif Qureshi, because Hanif Qureshi was a local boy and I knew the suburbs he was talking about. Even that, no matter how close or unclose it was, it was something. And I do absolutely now recognize how vital those little examples were. So that's that. I mean, I do think now, if I was 15, I could look at a really broader landscape, an incredible African diaspora landscape, instead of being told in school, oh, well, there's Chinua Chebi, goodbye. Which was never true, of course, but that's what you were told. Now, I know better, and I also have friends and peers who are African writers, either there or in America. That, is, to me, is thrilling. I would have been thrilled to know that at 50, and I hope the generation coming up are aware of how extraordinary that diasporic writing is now. Thank you very thank much. You. And thank you, Ted. Did you do a great <laughs> job? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.